Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Hi there, welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. I'm Dr. Toyna Jai, co-founder and chief health officer at CityBlock Health. Today's conversation continues to explore the topic of awareness. As a reminder, this includes the many ways healthcare systems are incorporating activities to understand patients' social circumstances, one of which is asking patients at the point of care about things like financial security. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Monica Peek, an associate professor in the Department of General Internal Medicine at the University of Chicago, to think with her about ways in which clinic-based social risk screening may differ for Black, Indigenous, and other people of color based on her own experiences with interpersonal and structural racism. I'm so, so, so delighted to have this conversation. Dr. Peek, I've been looking forward to this for so long. Thank you so much for being here with us. I too have been so excited to talk to you. We'll just dive into it. Tell us what's going on here. Tell us about the experience of a person of color encountering primary care and experiencing a screening for something that's sensitive and personal. Where did you sleep last night? Who do you live with? How much money is in your bank account today? What does that feel like for a person of color in their primary care office? You know, I think that for anyone, it can feel intrusive, but for people who are structurally marginalized, there can be an additional layer where we're not sure why people are asking the question. We know that there is a history where sometimes the answer to those questions can lead to things like children being taken out of our homes or other things that may not feel like it's a good outcome. And so I think that for so many reasons that have been part of the national conversation recently around vaccine hesitancy, structurally marginalized populations have this just layered levels of mistrust with government institutions and many other non-government institutions, including healthcare systems. And so when we have to think about those contexts, when we're asking very personal questions. And we're asking them for very good reasons. We know that material needs, insecurities, that the personal and sociopolitical context in which people live matters and impacts their health, you know, much more so than the healthcare that we're currently providing. And we have to figure out how to sort of weave those two things together if we want to have people live the vibrant, healthy lives that we want for them. But we have to sort of recognize that we can't just sort of dive in there in broken spaces, that mm -hmm. we have to be able to engage people and communities in places and ways that feel trusted and safe. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of the challenge that lies ahead of us is not just thinking about what are the right research questions, but what are the ways in which we can rebuild our healthcare systems, what are the right people to put in place to be able to ask those questions? How can we create these safe spaces so that when we do ask these very personal questions, people feel like they can be honest with the answers 
that they can feel assured that there's going to be a positive and affirmative response that is going to make their life better as a result of them answering those questions. And that answering those questions helps re reify and make stronger bonds between them and the community of providers in which they are existing in for that day and, you know, the continuity of their relationship that they're adding to this psychological space of a relationship with their healthcare team and not taking away from it. Thank you. There's so much in there that was so powerful. And I think, I think you really raised just our understanding of the fact that we're walking into, in any encounter with the healthcare system, we're walking into a ton of history that exists that either helps or uh, reinforces uh, the dynamics in the room. And so specifically, I think it's really interesting to, to think about all of the structural and historic reasons why folks of color in particular may be mistrustful of the healthcare system. I know you're doing work that's very specific around gun possession, screening for gun possession. Be really interested if you if you could tell us a little bit about what you're hearing from patients about what's working and what's not working in the way that we can ask these questions such that we elicit honest responses with all the context that you described that it needs to be in a safe and trustworthy context for people. Yeah, this is really fascinating work that's being led by one of my colleagues. I suppose I would call her a, a mentee, but she's such a bright star that she really is just sort of leading this space. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Tung um, in general medicine here at the University of Chicago, and she's also working with the SIREN team. And so her work really is looking at the impact of community violence on chronic health conditions broadly. And one of the projects that she's leading is thinking about screening for exposure to community violence and gun possession. And so we've done surveys and qualitative work asking African-Americans and Latinx populations in epicenters of violence in Chicago on the South side and the West side about their thoughts of what they think about screening for those two things. And one of the things that we found is that people were concerned about a couple of different things. One, that they would be discriminated against, that the question might not be universally applied, that people might come in and be like, hmm, here's a Black person. Maybe I should ask them about, you know, whether or not they have, they own a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, that the responses may then further accentuate people's biases about who they are as a person. And so there's additional work that we've done with the same population about why people are carrying guns. And a lot of that is in response to feeling unsafe, particularly around police brutality. And so why people choose to take measures to feel safe in our community may be different than other people in different communities. But if people are disclosing that to a healthcare provider, will that trigger latent implicit biases that they already have uniformly about African-Americans? And will that alter the care that they're being provided and treatment decisions? Mm -hmm. There's also concern that was expressed about what happens with this information. Will it be contained within the healthcare space or will that somehow end up in the hands of the, you know, criminal justice system or other places. And so when we as researchers and interventionists are thinking 
all the positive ways in which we can think about social risks and matching those of individuals to needs in the communities. And we know the, the great work that needs to be done to merge systems and to integrate screening and referrals and stand up these systems. So they're not just paper forms and sticky notes and have a more seamless electronic system so that systems are talking to each other and that people, I would facilitate people having these conversations. Mm -hmm. We think that sounds great. Patients may not think that sounds so great. (laughs) You know, like if I tell Mm -hmm. you something, where is that nugget of information going? Like, like when you put something out on the internet, Will that last forever? Will when I'm 79, will I still see that naked photo that I posted when I was 17? You know, if mm-hmm. I tell you that something that feels very private to my physician, is a policeman going to come knock my door down? You know, am I going to get shot like Breonna Taylor? Like, what's going to mm-hmm. happen with that information? And so, I think that for communities that have seen so much structural violence, for who have seen so much police violence, that when we think about a screening for things that are so important, like guns, where we know that people are increased for personal safety, the people who are more likely to die from, you know, a gun in the home is the person who owns the gun. It's really complicated. You know, we, we need Black lives to be valued and to be protected. And how are the ways that we can do that? How can we as healthcare systems lean into that? But it gets back to these underlying assumptions about who is protecting black and brown people. You Mm -hmm. know, is it, you know, how are we doing that as a police force? How are we doing that as, you know, a healthcare system? You know, what are we doing proactively with our with our policies so that black and brown people feel like that they're safe and that they can make the same calculus as other people can make about choices to answer affirmatively to these questions. Uh, My son just turned 12. Mm. You know, and it's a struggle Mm. for every black mom Mm -hmm. to try and figure out when it is time for them to learn Mm -hmm. to be smart and safe. Mm -hmm. You know, you want them to see the police as as a place of safety to go to, if they're out in the world, you know, go to a teacher, go to a police officer. But I have a black son. Mm-hmm. I also need him to know that he's also at risk should he approach a policeman. Mm-hmm. And he, with all that's been happening in 2020, already has got that down. Mm-hmm. You know, before I have had a conversation with him, he has already begun having conversations with me. You know, and so it's it's very complicated uh, for people who live a different life because of structural racism, mm-hmm. um, how we make calculated everyday decisions on how we would respond to things that other people would easily say yes to. Mm-hmm. Our, our calculus is different. And, and so I would ask, so I'm curious as to how you at City Block... <laughs> how you all are thinking about this because you co-founded this amazing organization that you can just, when you log onto your website, you can feel the love. You can feel this is a space for people who 
I want to go there. I live in a different state, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you can feel like with everything that you all are doing, you're trying to just wrap your hands around people and say, your presence here matters. We get you. We love you. Come on in. You know, this is your place. Mm-hmm. And how you all are thinking about these kinds of issues um, for these kinds of people. Well, you asked me a question, but I really want to ask you like 15 more. So um, so I'll, I'll, I'll give a quick response um, because I think what you said, like there's so many layers to what you said that were so powerful to me, this tension that we feel, right? You know, we're, we're healthcare providers. We are, in your case, you know, health services researchers. We believe that data and information about what's going on for our patients and our communities is powerful because it allows us in the ideal state to, to care for them differently and better. Right. The the idea here is about how do we screen for factors that are going to meaningfully change your health outcomes and that we could potentially intervene on to help improve those outcomes. And so for us at City Block, we're all about that. We're all about, you know, asking these really intimate questions to help gain information that helps us better serve the people that we're caring for. And I believe that in principle. But I think the thing that you're saying is that is so like meaningful for me is. Can we say that universally? And so where do you stand here as a researcher and a clinician who believes like we believe that more information in the hands of, of well-intended healthcare providers and social care providers can help reduce disparities? And we know that our system is rife with bias and with racism and that the reasons why people may mis- be mistrustful are not unfounded. And that I can't guarantee that if, if we are, you know, supportive of universal screening as an example for gun possession, that that wouldn't be used to harm people of color disproportionately. I can't be certain of that. I don't know if you can, but I hear you saying you can't. So where do you net out? Like, what do you say, what do you say to us as we think about uh, really building our tools in primary care to gain awareness and understanding of what's going on in our patients' lives? Should we be, have we earned the right to even have this information? And if not, are there other steps we should be taking? Are we barking up the wrong tree? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I have all the right answers, but I think that with most things, I find that for things that are really important, people are always using the metaphor that we're flying the plane as we're building it, you know, for really important things, we don't have the luxury of getting everything perfect before we launch. Time is of such of the essence. And I think this is one of those things. COVID is one of those things. And so I think that we have to do multiple things simultaneously that for people like us and like probably everybody who's listening, I know Laura, um, people who they've already had come speak, Dr. Stacey Lindau, um, people who it's just a privilege. You know, I was... I'm emailing you yesterday saying that I feel better and stronger knowing that there are others in the world who are like you and and like the people I just mentioned who are to me are like the the Avengers like okay I can be one one small superhero but you know I'm like Spider-Man or like one of the smaller creatures you know but if I can see Iron Man or Thor or some other people out there then then we're all stronger together. Mm-hmm. And so, because there's so much work to do. So I think that we can't, we don't have the luxury of just being academics. We have to also be 
advocates. And we have to also be the ones who are doing the interventions. And we have to also be the ones who are in the communities building trusting relationships. And we have to also be the ones who are training the next generation and like probably 15 other things at the same time. And so we have to be thinking with this awareness about the harms of structural racism as we're building these tools that can talk to each other. You know, what are the unintended consequences? And I know for sure that, you know, Dr. Linda has an R01 thinking about the unintended consequences and the potential harms of screening, of social mm-hmm. needs screening. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the downsides? We all can sort of visualize the upsides, but what mm-hmm. are those potential harms? How can we be more rigorous in our approach of thinking about those so that we can then try and counterbalance those, mm-hmm. but still recognizing that these, these positives do exist because we see the result of all the structural racism and we have to still push forward and try and balance those out. I think Mm -hmm. we have to, you know, just acknowledge that we should just say, work on the assumption that every black and brown person who walks into a clinic has had an experience with racism, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, even if we don't screen for it, let's just take that as a given. And so start working to change their healthcare experiences based on that, working Mm -hmm. to build interventions and things on that assumption. Mm -hmm. We can then sort of stack layered things that might be more helpful for people who have had significant barriers or significant experiences and trauma that are based on healthcare-based discrimination and racism or certain other kinds of discrimination. But if we just build a floor and foundation, assuming that we've all experienced that or that, you know, all black and people, brown people have, um, then we don't have to be dependent so much on, you know, screening tools for that. Like, well, I haven't asked, so I'm not sure if they have. I bet you they probably have, Mm -hmm. you know? And then we can then say, have addition be be more thoughtful about how we're screening, who we're screening, when we're screening for some of these potentially more sensitive questions. I, I did a, a lot of focus groups for African Americans with diabetes around race and shared decision making. And we were using patients at the University of Chicago who we had a race concordant interviewer. We were interviewing people who were on campus, but not in the clinic themselves, physically separate from where they seek care. We're like, listen, your doctor will never know this was you. All of this is anonymous. They can't see you, you know, you know, whatever. All of these things, your care will not be affected. This is not part of your medical record. Yet and still, the information that we got from the one-on-one interviews Mm -hmm. where people was just talking to an individual were wholly different than what we got when people were in groups, felt more anonymous and could have sort of the group say, yeah, this happened to me. And then someone else could be like, yeah, actually me too. Mm -hmm. You know, those are under research, sterile settings, not directly related to care, you know, with someone who was a black moderator doing Mm -hmm. research for a black female physician. So then take all that away and say, here's a black person at the clinical office being asked about experiences of racism in the waiting room, you know, as part of their medical record, what kind of information and fear and worries about retaliation for their care are they going to be concerned about? 
Mm -hmm. We're going to have to think about all of those things. There's a lot in the in the chat actually that speaks to this in the Q and A. I just wanting to pull that up and tie that thread together. So you know, one of the commenters suggested exactly this that maybe screening at the point of care is not exactly the way to get there. They sort of cited the example that you know when they talk to the social worker and the one on one conversations. You've talked about having a group session where people are more likely to be open. I think there's something here about others have asked questions about self administered tools. I think there's a question about whether we could use technology because I'm always amazed at how much people share on social media that they may not even share to their their providers. And so there is something there that you're you're really pushing us towards around how do we creatively provide many opportunities for people to share information as they feel comfortable in contexts that feel safer to them that may not feel like your traditional screening tool, let's check a bunch of boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, another question though, an approach which sort of takes this even further is as one of the commenters asked, you know, should healthcare organizations not screen and actually just offer services and referrals to all? And is screening the wrong approach? So another idea is, you know, do we just give people and and someone had mentioned in the chat also in the in the Q and A using language like, here's a here's some resources on domestic violence you could use it or you could give it to a friend if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Have you tested and and had experience with some of these approaches? And what is what's your thought about whether it gets us the type of robustness of data that we actually want to need? Because the the flip side obviously is it doesn't sit centrally. It's not in structured data. Can we really think about standardization around that? I'm curious your thoughts about the trade-offs there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that we know we do have survey data that gives us a sense from local survey and national survey that the self-reports of healthcare discrimination are very high. And so I do think that we could, again, as a floor, start universally providing information, you know, Mm -hmm. to everybody, and that would not be harmful. And we could also use that as a starting point for then following up and saying, did you use any of these resources? Did you find them helpful? Because then it has a starting from like, we're we're concerned about this issue. We're Mm -hmm. trying to do something about it. We've given a service, we've shown that we cared. How'd that work for you? As opposed to starting from a place of is your doctor racist? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, that has a, diver- a very different feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that we, we, we don't know any of these answers, but I think that we don't have a whole lot of opportunities to get it right. And so we do need to be really thoughtful coming out the gate with how we're trying to do this. And we could probably learn a lot from how others have handled very sensitive information in, let's say, the LGBT community and HIV testing and disclosure and and those kinds of things, things that that were, you know, had a lot of stigma associated with it and how people were disclosing information and sharing networks and all of that stuff. I think that there's a lot that we can learn in how we're trying to get our hands around experiences with racism within the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And you touched on a little bit, and I think there's there's some threads of, of questions here about, you know, we, we're increasingly recognizing that, that structural racism in itself is a risk factor. The experience of racism is a risk factor for worse health outcomes and for ongoing trauma associated with the healthcare system. I've heard some people refer to that as racism as a social determinant and that we should be screening for it. 
I heard you also say, you know, we just should, we can make the assumption, given our history, that it is ubiquitous, that any person of color encountering the healthcare system has experienced racism in some way. And is there any value to explicitly going after that information, explicitly asking and eliciting it in the healthcare setting? What are your thoughts there? I would say probably so, but we need to think about how to do so in a way that feels safe and that could be validating. I myself, I'm a physician. I have all the social power that comes with that. I study patient empowerment and I usually get care where I'm working. So people usually know who I am. I have so many crazy stories about racism, Mm -hmm. you know, as a patient, you know, like what I saw one time I went in and this man was reviewing my chart and he said, it says here that you have a history of breast cancer. Was that documented? Oh, no, I just made that up. You know. What? You know. Cancer is a biopsy proven diagnosis. Why? How would that appear in my record? You know, otherwise. But you're you're at. Would you ask anyone else that question? You know, and so I had to tell him I was a doctor. And then I thought maybe he thought maybe I was a doctor of like education. I had to tell him I was a medical doctor. This is like we had the craziest conversation. This is just one episode of like thousands, you know, so, so it is really, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. We should, we should just take that as a given. And, but <laughs> I, I, so, so I, I think yes and no, we should take it as a given, but we should also find a way that we can learn from these experiences. I got a lot of stuff on my chest. I'd like to get off. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know that? Now the healthcare mm-hmm. system learned about it. No one's ever asked. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that there are some people who would be afraid of repercussions of being asked. And so I think that we've got to figure out how to do this in a way that feels safe for people. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I think you're, you're framing here, and I think a lot of folks in the, in the Q&A have sort of suggested that whatever we can do to create a trust-based rapport with patients, including acknowledging and holding space for their experiences of race and racism in the healthcare system or beyond could itself create a foundation for us then starting to ask and answer other questions about them and their social needs. Mm -hmm. We're just at about time. I do want to just say a thank you to Madeline in the Q&A for a really, really perfectly put point in terms of the language and framing. So so they're inviting us to to flip the narrative and I invite all of you here who are listening to flip the narrative from these populations, these people of color lack trust in the healthcare system to putting putting the emphasis where it should be. We've not earned the trust of certain populations. The healthcare system has failed to earn the trust of BIPOC communities. And therefore, how do we talk about this? And, And shifting the responsibility away from the populations that we're seeking to care for and to the healthcare system, I think is a really powerful frame to to end here. I'm so, so grateful to you, Dr. Peak, for being here. This has been a terrific conversation. I'm so glad to have been a part of it. Um, I thank you all who have been joining us. I thank you to our listeners in the future. Um, And just a shout out, the next Siren Coffee and Science session is scheduled for February 19th. We'll feature Dr. Elena Byhoff and Dr. David Schleifer, who will together explore patient perspectives on social risk screening. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, 
a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.